No, I never have, which is why I don't know it. (laughs) (laughs) It is now my great pleasure as we continue our morning together to introduce our guest speaker, Derek Tidball, um, today. And uh, Derek is his former principal of London School of Theology um, and is a wonderful Bible teacher. The, The... the, the stat I've been using, I don't know how accurate this is, but I think Derek has written more books than most of us have read. Um, I don't know how true that is, but Derek's written a lot of books. And so Derek is, is a wonderful Bible teacher, full of knowledge and wisdom. Um, but I think probably more importantly for us, um, or as importantly, is that Derek is a friend to us as a church. He's come to speak um, here a few times, but um, has been a huge support, um, not just for me personally, but um, for us as a church indirectly through that, but also for our whole family of churches over the last few years has been instrumental in helping us, encouraging us um, through the, the ups and downs of church life. So I would love you to give the warmest possible welcome that you can to Derek as he comes um, to speak and continue our flipping series. <laughs> Over to you, Derek. Yep. Well, really great to be uh, here and uh, see you in person. Uh, Last time I preached here, I was preaching from my lounge. It was much more comfortable doing it on Zoom. I couldn't see you. Uh, I'm sure that wasn't the reason. It was more comfortable. Uh, But uh, much better still, isn't it, to be back in touch. Um, I think Duncan's, oops, excuse me, there we are. I'm trying to set a clock here, but that was to encourage you to wake up already, (laughs) just in case. Um, I think Duncan set me up in all sorts of uh, ways this morning, three ways in particular. I am a preacher, so you're bound to get three. Uh, Let me tell you two, and uh, then we'll do the Bible reading. Um, Firstly, thank you for the welcome and the build-up. That always sets expectations high, doesn't it? I know some people, there was a very very famous professor in this university, actually, uh, of a former generation who was a superb writer. But if you ever heard him speak, you fell asleep after the first three sentences. He wasn't a very good preacher. So the fact that I've written a lot of books doesn't mean anything, really. But... (laughs) Thank you, nonetheless, for the welcome. Uh, Secondly, I I listen most Sundays online to what's going on here and to some of the other Grace Connection uh, churches. And um, uh, Duncan is a superb preacher and Bible teacher. I hope you appreciate the quality of what you get Sunday by Sunday. There we are. There's one person applauding at least. So I feel a bit like the Apostle Paul who went to Corinth in fear and trembling. Just don't compare us. We're different. Um, The third reason I'll give you uh, when we've looked at the Bible reading. So if you've got a Bible or if you're following on the screen, let me invite you to pay attention to Philippians chapter 1. And we're reading from verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything, uh, by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation. And that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw, that I had, and that now I hear, I, you hear I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And there we leave the writing of Paul to the Philippians. Uh, when Duncan invited me and said, this is the passage, here's the third reason he's setting me up. His words in an email to me were, come up to Manchester and tell us how to behave. <laughs> oh yeah. We all know what happens when somebody says, tell us how to behave, don't we? Uh, I mean, there wasn't a petrol crisis till the government told us not to go and get petrol. And then we all poured into the petrol stations doing the exact opposite. What wonderful psychology as every parent knows the reverse psychology of telling your kids not to do something and then they go and do it so you tell them the opposite of what you really want them to do so I'm not so sure about coming up to Manchester and telling you lot as a southerner or a midlander now how to behave uh, but I don't mind telling you what Paul says you should do <laughs> and how you should behave according to the word of God if you just take one thing away this morning in terms of what you should do by way of Christian behavior, you'll find it in chapter 1 and verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct, there we are, behave yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Literally, Paul says, only, only one thing that I want to impress upon you one of the great theologians of the 20th century was a man called Karl Barth. He's almost impenetrable in his books. But he did write a brilliant commentary on Philippians. And he says at this point, I can just imagine the Apostle Paul lifting his finger and waving it at the Philippians. Only this. Pay attention. Just one thing. It's the sort of thing that a colonel might say when the troops are gathered before a battle and sent into battle. Now, the Iraq war was very controversial, I know that. But there was a colonel who addressed his troops on the eve of it, Colonel Tim Collins, whose speech was reproduced in the newspapers for several days and discussed afterwards. This is what Tim Collins said to his troops when he realized that they were going to invade what was a very ancient civilization with so many historical things to care for, telling them not to harm the very ground on which they were going to stand. 
And he said this, if you harm the regiment or its history by over-enthusiasm in killing or in cowardice, know it is your family who will suffer. You'll be shunned unless you conduct yourselves in the highest manner, for your deeds will follow you down through history. We will bring shame on neither our uniform or on our nation. Be aware that you're wearing the uniform of the British Army and of one of its regiments. And don't drag its reputation or the honor of the Queen to whom you've sworn an oath of loyalty into the sand and into the mud because you've been over-enthusiastic or indeed under-enthusiastic. There is a way to behave which does not bring shame on the regiment and you behave worthily. And Paul is saying, in effect, and there's a lot of military language, as we'll see, going on here. He's conscious. He's chained in a home arrest situation with the Praetorian Guard looking after him, the crack troops of Caesar, as you heard, if you were here the other week. So the presence of soldiers and military are all around, and that must have just sparked some of his use of language and he's saying, look, as Christians, we're part of an army. You need to behave in a way that doesn't bring the Christian regiment, most of all, your sovereign, the name of Christ, into disrepute. But rather that you honor him and live in a way which is worthy. It's a wonderful word, isn't it? Worthy. <laughs> it's uh, almost a sort of, um, well, sometimes I say uh, uh, you know, our Bibles, if you have posh ones like I have, uh, they're printed on Indian paper. They're very delicate, very holy, very sacred. Not many books have that. And the word worthy seems to fit with the Indian paper, the, the holy, the sacred atmosphere of churches. What on earth does it mean? Well, Paul goes on to explain it means one thing in particular, in this particular context. Elsewhere, it may mean different things. This isn't the whole of the story. But to the Philippians, he wants to say, listen, to walk worthy means that you will stand firm, that you will show unflinching courage and be courageous and not let anything knock you off your perch because you're naming the name of Christ. And in the verses that we read together, having introduced it in that way, he then begins to unpack what it means. And we're going to ask actually four questions of this passage this morning to unlock its message. When Paul says that you should stand firm, encourages you to stability as a Christian disciple, why does he do that? Well, we needn't spend a long time on this because actually the last couple of weeks have been all about that. You need to stand firm because there are plenty of influences and circumstances which will mean that you fail, that you don't stand upright for Christ. There's the enemy, first of all, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago of uncertainty. Paul's in prison. He doesn't know whether he's going to be released and returned to continue his mission to renew relationships with the Philippian church, 
or whether he's going to be led out, bent down over an executioner's block and have his head chopped off. He doesn't know his future. Uh, and if he's uncertain about his future, well, there are plenty of reasons in Philippi where, why they should be uncertain about their future. The Roman Empire wasn't desperately favorable towards the growth of this new Christian sect as they saw it. Persecution wasn't perpetual. It was sometimes sp sporadic. Sometimes it hit an area and not the neighboring area. But it could have been a very real fact about being a disciple of Jesus that not only might Paul lose his head, but ordinary believers in the churches in places like Philippi might well have been persecuted for their faith. So whatever happens, he says, stand firm. Not just because God blesses you, immediately answers your prayer, fills your bank account with money, allows you to drive a BMW and all the rest of it. Whatever happens, stand firm. Uh, stand firm, secondly, you need to do so because of uh, the enemy of division. He's referred to that in chapter 1. There were some people exploiting Paul's imprisonment for their own ends. We're not quite sure, as Duncan explained, what lay behind this uh, in this original uh, reference to, to the divisions in the church. It may have been no more than a personality cult. There may have been some different emphasis in spirituality. Oh, Paul doesn't preach enough about this. So, yeah, God hasn't blessed him. He's shut him up in a... Uh, in jail for the moment. That's good. Now he's out of the way. We can make the running. Look at us. Division is a key issue as we'll return to saying. And in the face of all sorts of different emphases and potential divisions in the church, you're not to be put off, but you are to stand firm. Um, we... Um, uh, so often look to the church and judge our Christian behavior by that. We were having supper last night with friends and we commented, uh, friends from the church that we usually go to when we're not elsewhere. And uh, we were saying, oh, we haven't seen so-and-so for so long. Uh, oh no, we've got a new pastor and they didn't quite like this or that. So they don't come anymore. So are they going to another church? No, no, they're, they're not going anywhere. And after years of being in Christian leadership, in leadership in that local church, they're not standing firm. The division has put them off. So whether it's uncertainty or persecution or division, Satan will find all sorts of reasons to trip you up and knock you off your path of discipleship. The call is to stand firm, not because you're a stubborn personality. Some of you may be that. <laughs> but for better reasons still. So if the first question is, why do we need it? And those are some of the answers. The second question Paul asks is, how can we achieve it? How is it that you can stand firm? Well, he says in verse 27, you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. See the picture of the army behind his right, writing here. 
How does an army fight a battle? Not because all the individual soldiers go off and do their own thing, question the strategies of the general, break away and uh, take their own initiative. The Roman army in particular was well known for marching together in formation and linking their shields over the top of them one by one to stave off the enemy. They were one. And Paul comes back to this in, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 that we read. He, he introduces it in chapter 1 and verse 27 and then explains it further in chapter 2. Let's go over that ground again. Let's expand what we've said. So some of the very similar language in chapter 2 and verse 2. Complete my joy by being what? Of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. You get the message? One, 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 one. And uh, that may be scary to some of us. Well, does that mean to say there's no possible room for any deviation in the church? Can't you call into question and argue with Duncan about anything? Is he the Pope that whatever he says, that's it? Because you need to be united? Now, actually, the image to, to change from the army for a moment to use the image from music, the image is a call to singing in harmony, not singing in unison. So we have one purpose, we're going in one direction, but our contribution may be that of a tenor or a bass or an alto. We make a distinctive contribution to add to the glorious one song, united song and harmony that we sing. And when Paul emphasizes that oneness, well, you see, he's saying, you love like Jesus. Um, that's all there in, in the opening verse of, verse of chapter 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, the love of Christ, well, you imitate that. Uh, and he goes on spelling that out in reference to, to God the Father time and time again. You love like Jesus, which is a self-giving love. You feel alike. You're soulmates with one another. You aim or you have a common purpose alike. You're all pulling in the same direction. And why is that? Well, because that's inherent in your Christian faith. You do that not just because it's pragmatically wise, you know, if the Labour Party ever want to become the government again, one of the things all the commentators say is they've got to overcome their divisions and pull together. If you want to get elected, unity is important. But Paul gives you a much deeper reason for being united in the church. It's not about if you want to grow in Manchester, you need to show a united face. It will help. But actually, Paul's motivation is, listen here, you need to be united because that's the very nature of God himself. That's inherent in your gospel. Those opening verses where he expands it, chapter 2, actually all relate to God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit. Those three persons are, as we say in the doctrine of the Trinity, one. It's what we say 
if we say the grace, as we often do at the end of a, a, a Christian meeting, when we're using 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the participation in the Holy Spirit, Paul's using exactly that and saying that's the reason why we need to be one. Unity is not just a, a, a useful weapon against the enemy. It belongs to the very essence of our faith. But how are we to achieve that unity, which means we're encouraged and able to stand firm? Well, we do it, he says, in two respects. Firstly, when he's talking about this in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, we strive together. I think there's a recognition on Paul's part that this won't necessarily come naturally. It won't necessarily come easily. Goodness me, I've been a part of the church and the ministry of the church for well over 50 years now. I know all about the awkward people that come and join churches. <laughs> Any horror story you can tell, I can probably outdo completely. <laughs> uh, how difficult it is to love some Christians. Why aren't they all like me? The world would be so much better. The church would be so much better if they were. Um, but God has created a diversity. That's the glory of the gospel. That people from so many different nations, so many different languages, so many different backgrounds, so many different experiences, has all found unity in Christ but it doesn't just drop from the ceiling <laughs> easily. We have to work at it, just like any army has to go into training and strive for the victory. So we have to work at it. And what's the simple lesson? How do we strive? Well, we do it the second thing, he says here, by humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more than significant than yourselves, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are naturally self-protective, selfish, have our own ambitions, our own desires. But in Christ, we get reversed. Uh, we serve others as he did. We put others first rather than putting ourselves first. How many churches don't do that? Because, well, in mainline churches, in traditional churches that have a great history, so often the divisions have come because people have served a particular organization or way of doing youth work or a particular style of women's work, for instance, and they become very protective of their territory. This is the only way to do it. And we change over my dead body. Rather than saying, is it helpfully serving the current generation? How can I make this available to others? And in doing so, demonstrate the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we need to strive together because none of us find humility easy. We actually usually want to put ourselves forward. So Paul spends quite a bit of time here talking about uh, uh, how we can achieve stability. We do it by 
being united together rather than having to stand alone. Let me point out to you something that I hadn't noticed until a month or so ago when I was studying this passage uh, for a different purpose, different group. The third question he asks is, what is the point of stability? Why are you standing firm? Well, uh, the point is that you aren't standing firm out of stubbornness or self-righteousness. What he says here is that we are to stand firm. This is back to verse, uh, uh, to chapter one, um, building on what it is to be worthy of the gospel. Uh, and, and he says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, verse 27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I just read that for many years and just took it for granted. Until somebody pointed out, do you see what Paul is saying there? What is the Christian church in this country known for at the moment? It's often known for standing firm against various things, against sexual immorality, against gambling, against identity politics, against this, against that. Now, all those issues are ethically important, but wouldn't it be wonderful if instead of being known for standing against, we were known because we stand for. And what we stand for is not some contemporary ethical change, but for the heart of our faith, the gospel, that God has worked to rescue the world and to transform our lives through Jesus Christ. As one commentator, Gordon Fee, puts it in Philippians, uh, uh, well, he's describing Paul as the legendary King Midas. Everything King Midas touched turned to gold. Everything Paul touches turns to the gospel. Nine times in Philippians, he talks about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. That's what motivates him. Sometimes it's, it's just a synonym for talking about Christ himself because Christ is the gospel. So when people look at Revelation Church Manchester, what do they know you for? Is it that here's a place where they will find and hear about God rescuing the world through the good news of Jesus. Is that our priority? That's what we should be standing firm for. How sad that around the world many churches are being divided because they're often taking what is an important, but perhaps at the end of the day, a lesser issue, and making that the primary issue. Oh, we can't have fellowship with you because you differ over. Hang on a moment. Don't we find our unity in the gospel of Jesus? And doesn't that take a priority over everything? One last question that Paul is answering here. And that is, who's affected by this stability? Who's impacted by the fact that we might stand firm? And he refers to two different groups, two different groups of people. Think in these terms. When a terrorist attack occurs, what does the prime minister or some other government-worthy 
rush to the airwaves to say, we won't give in. We're going to stand firm. They're not going to win. We're not going to let them have their day. We're going to stand firm. And in doing so, we will defeat them. Well, in a way, that's what Paul is saying here. If you stand firm for the gospel, well, it will point to the deeper reality that some people who resist you and who aren't standing firm with you are on their way to destruction. They're on the way out. They backed the wrong horse. In the battle situation where the army of Christ has stood firm unitedly, then the enemy has been defeated and is being driven back. But the other group are the resistors. Those who are in the army of Christ who stood firm. And you, he says, will be saved. You'll be vindicated at the end of the day. You'll be delivered when the time comes. It may not be here and now to give you a comfortable life. But in the longer term perspective of the life hereafter, you'll be the ones who are on the victory side. He returns to that theme and expounds it further in chapter 4. He talks of the way in which now, elsewhere in the book of Romans, for example, you may endure a little suffering, but the present sufferings, he says there in Romans chapter 8, will be nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. And do you know the most interesting thing here? The end of chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 28, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should suffer not only but to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake hey Paul's language is saying listen it's a privilege for you to suffer for Jesus it's not something to run away with or resist or give up but actually to grasp as a privilege a and Interestingly, the word he uses here in the Greek is a word that corrects it, connects it very clearly to charisma. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift of the Spirit that you are being called to suffer. God has graced you with the privilege of suffering for him. Why is that such a privilege, such a grace? Well, who's at the heart of our faith? Christ. And what did Christ do? Suffer. He ended up on a cross. So it leads you to Jesus. Time and time and time again. I had a colleague at uh, London School of Theology who always used to say when it was a fashion for people to wear a wristband, WWJD, what would Jesus do? He said, well, very often we don't know what Jesus would do, but one thing we know he would do is end up on a cross. <laughs> so if you want to wear that wristband, <laughs> what you're asking is that you end up on a cross. Hey, listen, we are in a very privileged, comfortable position in the United Kingdom as Christians still. We may not have the privileges we had in the 60s or the 50s or the 40s, 
but we've no reason to complain, really. But our brothers and sisters around the world, many of them, day after day, they're suffering because of Christ. And they have the privilege, <laughs> which is denied us. We are being called to identify more and more closely with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one Christ, and that is Christ crucified and risen. If you want close fellowship with Jesus, don't be surprised if God leads you into suffering. So how can you live a life that's worthy of God? Well, stand firm. Stand firm whatever happens. Stand firm together in the church because you're striving together and working at humility to put others first. Stand firm for the gospel and stand firm even when suffering comes because long term the truth of the situation will be revealed and you'll be on the victory side. You may be facing all sorts of challenges things that want to discourage you and say, give up. You may be new at university and you're surrounded <laughs> with uh, a load of unbelievers. It just flicked through my mind then of my own first year at university reading sociology in the 1960s. I came from a secure uh, Christian family and a vibrant Christian church. Uh, and I was plunged into a world where uh, my prof had been a believer at one stage and then thought sociology explained religion away sufficiently. Most of my class were ardent Marxists. It was at the time of student revolutions at the late 60s and so on. And suddenly I found myself surrounded by others. And I had to work out whether my Sunday school faith was going to stand a test in an adult world or not, in the real world. That was the time to stand firm. You may have discouragements in your family, uncertainty about the future of your work. Whatever, be worthy of the gospel and stand firm in Christ. Let me pray with you. Father, we're very different people coming from different situations in life with different lengths of experience and different kinds of experience of the gospel. But I pray increasingly as the weeks go by that you would unite the people here in Revelation Church, that they may encourage one another to stand firm. I pray that as individual believers, whatever they face, not because they're stubborn personalities, Rather, I pray that they may exude the grace of Christ. But nonetheless, I pray that they may hold on and stand firm. And so in every way, be worthy of the Christ in whom we say we believe. The Christ who died and rose again. Give us strength, courage, determination, resolution to work at that for the glory of your name. Amen. Thank you so much.